we know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability. It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Before I bring the guest on, I got to tell you, it's been a crazy week. I cannot believe everything that's going on in the world of UFOs, and it's all come about in the last week. Monday, May 17th, Obama was on a, the Late Late Show with Stephen Cordell, I think, or whatever the heck his name is, Stephen Cordell, and was talking about UFOs. And he said, when it comes to aliens, when it comes to aliens, there are some things I just can't tell you, meaning he's privy, of course, to classified information. Had I written UFOs in the Deep State this year and had the book not been published on May 1st of this year, that quote would be on the front cover. I can't think of a better thing to put on the front cover of a book about UFOs than the president or former president of the United States, regardless of who he is, saying when it comes to aliens, there are some things I just can't tell you. And this tells us a great deal about the deep state and its behind-the-scenes operations in the investigations of UFOs. When that statement is added to what I learned about President Carter's attempt to learn about UFOs, the real power is not the elected officials, but by the, the bureaucrats who serve from administration to administration. Just look at who President Biden has brought into his cabinet in the upper positions of the government. They're holdovers from the Obama administration, from the Bush administration, from the Clinton administration. And I don't know how many from the Trump administration. I think they cleaned most of those people out because they were brought in um, for President Trump and not part of this overall picture. Anyhow, the book explains the UFOs in the deep state, how presidents are kept in the dark, which surprises the heck out of me. Because I figured if the, as the president, I could get the information. I would just go down the line of the people, say I wanted the DCI to tell me about UFOs. And if he says, well, sorry, Mr. President, I can't do you, do, tell you that, my next step would be you're fired, bring in your deputy and go down the line until I got somebody to give me the information. But in writing the book, I, un, I began to understand how these things are manipulated and how the Office of Special Investigations, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, has silenced witnesses literally for decades. So this should open some eyes. So if you get a chance, take a look at that book, because I think you'll understand President Obama's statement and some of the things that have been going on in the, um, in the world around us today. My guest is Rob Brun Del Rey. His book is UFOs Proof, Proof Positive. I can't believe I can't say proof positive. Rob was born and raised in Ottawa, Canada, but we're not going to hold the Canadian citizenship against him. He graduated <laughs> with a bachelor's degree in engineering from the University of Ottawa and a master of engineering degree from Carleton University. Rob began working in satellite communications with the Department of Defense, and that would be with a C and posed to an N, as I'm telling that for the American viewers, viewers American listeners. Uh, moving on to Canada's CF-18 fighter program as a technical specialist in electronic warfare. After selection for executive development, Rob worked alternately on exchange in Australia, 
where I earned a graduate certificate in management, the Privy Council Office, the Treasury Board Secretary, and other federal departments before moving into security and intelligence, where he finished his career as an associate assistant deputy minister. Rob lives in Greeley with his wife, Carol, and several remote controlled aircraft. Rob, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thank you, Kevin. Nice to be here, and thanks for the invitation. Oh, well, we always like to have fun people on the program. <laughs> Let me start with the really basic question, which is, of course, what got you interested in UFOs? Oh, super question. Um, Kevin, I, I grew up in the 60s, and uh, you know those were my sort of formative years. And around the house, we always used to have Time and Life magazine, both of them, and both quite different. They were always lying around the house. And um, Life in particular would often have pictorial essays on UFOs. Time would occasionally have an odd article on UFOs. But it was the Life articles that kind of got me really piqued. And as a young 8, 9, 10, 12-year-old, I'd see these pictures lying around, and I just memorized them. There's, isn't that interesting? A round, silvery disc that flies without jets or props. And I just stuck in my memory as being, wow, that's really interesting. I wonder if there's something to this. And that was the genesis. I kept a vivid interest through high school and into university. And then the more I started looking into it, you know, as a casual observer, without being convinced one way or t'other, um, started looking into it. And the more I looked into it, the more intriguing it got. And the more I looked into it, and the more people said there's nothing to this, the more interested I got, uh, until I worked my way through, and I'm you know, now quite a bit older, and I am now absolutely more than 100% convinced that this is real, there's something to this, we're not being told about it, and it is profoundly earth-shaking, in my opinion, anyways. Was there a case that really... Speak, uh, sparked your interest, a case that um, you found inexplicable that kind of led you to the conclusion that UFOs are, I, I assume, the alien spacecraft? Yeah, a great question, Kevin. I have to answer that with absolutely yes. There have been a number of cases that led up to this that always piqued my interest, some of them actually Canadian cases of all things. But the rock of all rocks, and I'm not saying this because you're an expert in this particular case, um, but the rock of all rocks is Roswell and, uh, and or uh, the Magdalena case, whatever you want to call it. But the Roswell cases, we all know it. As far as I'm concerned, that's real. It happened. They've hidden it from us. And they are still trying to figure out what it all means. What, you know, what's the technology? How does it work? Why are they here? Why do they want to be here? Why do they not want to tell us they're here, et cetera? But yes, Ros to answer your question, for me, it's Roswell. Does it bother you that a number of the witnesses that were held up as star witnesses, as uh, leading us directly to the extraterrestrial, have uh, been shown to be less than candid with their uh, testimony? Um, it's a concern for sure. But, but here's the bottom line as far as I'm concerned, uh, Kevin, with, with something like Roswell. It's not Roswell in of itself. It is the whole story of that era that includes Majestic 12 and that includes Vannevar Bush and the Canadian link, of course, which is Wilbert Smith of our defense research establishment, who was independently verifying a lot of these facts that have come out subsequently, you know, like the Vannevar Bush engagement, for example, the James Forrestal engagement, et cetera, et cetera. And I continue to maintain, um, and, and, you know, as this is sort of my kind of view of it, the Majestic 12 documents, even if they're proven to be fake, does not mean that the information they contain is wrong. Do you know what I mean? The information might be 100% accurate. The documents could be fake. For whatever reason, there's probably some backstory that made them have to be fake. I don't know. But the information, as far as I'm able to determine, 
is quite accurate in those Majestic 12. Vannevar Bush was involved, for sure. And uh, Roswell happened, for sure. And for Estal, God bless him, probably did not fall out of the Bethesda Naval Hospital of his own volition. He did not commit suicide. He was helped. I mean, you know, it's, so it's the whole story. It would be impossible to concoct something like that. The conspiracy involved to produce all of the little feeder pieces of information that go into that story is just so complex. In the pilots that flew the uh, flew the debris, the uh, Jesse Marcel and his family, all of the related stories that all have a piece of that pie, they couldn't all possibly have gotten together one day at a conference hall and decided they're going to concoct the story, hatch it, publish it, and then have the rest of us sort of believe that this is, uh, you know, believe in what they're telling us and it's all false. I just don't buy it. It's That's too complicated and too complex to make happen. The reverse is most likely possible. The reverse but, uh, being that, sorry, yeah? Well, we know that people tend to plug themselves into stories when they were not involved. We've seen this in many, many different arenas, people claiming to be in places that they were not so they could claim some kind of participation in it. And I think we have some of that in the Roswell case where people saying, yes, I was there and I did this and I did that. And it does not track with the overall picture. Doesn't that harm the case in your mind? It, well, it, it detracts. There's no question about it. But as far as um, harming the fundamental case, uh, I, I think the case is strong enough for it to hold up on its own. I mean, how... How do you discover in the mid-80s, literally, I think it was 1986 or 87, that the Wilbert Smith memo was found um, in the National Archives here in Ottawa? It's a 1950 memo, top secret, to the um, basically the secretary of the Department of Transport, which was, in our parlance, deputy minister of transport. Um, this is the top senior civil servant in the Department of Transport, essentially, who Basically, Wilbert Smith is telling him that through a contact in the States that we now know was Dr. Robert Sarbacher, that he has ascertained that UFOs are real. Actually, he called them flying saucers, are real. It is the highest um, security-cleared subject in the United States. It is of tremendous significance, and that there is a concerted team led by Vannevar Bush uh, looking into it. How do you concoct a falsehood around that? I mean, this is an independent, top-secret memorandum found, you know, 40 years after the fact that's pointing to the same information that, that's been coming out of several sources in the U.S. Um, I know you're getting at people that have sort of made bigger stories than they are worth, but when you look at the whole picture, it's all pointing to the same thing, in my view, anyways. Okay, well, we're going to have to take a break. I know I'm a little bit early on that, um, but I did want to say a couple of things not related to this, uh, other things I wanted to take care of. We'll come back to uh, Robert Sabacher and that story here when we come back from the break. But I did want to mention, first of all, that there are um, many fine programs about the paranormal found at xzbn.net. So take a look at the listings on the website, and you're going to find a program Maybe your favorite program, which of course should be mine, uh, about the paranormal and other things that will be of interest to you in, in that vein. And I also wanted to mention, and I appreciate the people who bought copies of my book, such as uh, Encounter in the Desert, Roswell in the 21st Century, um, uh, the, the uh, Best of Project Blue Book, and, and the latest book, uh, The um, UFOs in the Deep State. I appreciate the people who bought that. If you've liked the books, uh, Please give a rating on Amazon. Those things help spread the word that we're trying to get out here about the reality of the situation, whatever that situation might be. I think that um, the books provide a clearer understanding of exactly how this whole thing has evolved. And by whole thing, I mean the UFO um, history from the beginning of the Foo Fighters in World War II up to the point where we are today. And I think that'll give you a better idea and a better grasp on exactly what's going on. And it kind of leads us into the deeper picture, which leads us into the deep state and how that is kind of manipulating information, even if it's, well, I, I was going to say not nefarious, but I think with the deep state, an awful lot of it is nefarious. It's just a matter of keeping power into the hands of certain people and controlling that power and controlling the 
the people to retain the power and the power leads them to money and other such things like that. So take a look at those books. I think that you'll enjoy them. And you are listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And we'll be right, we'll be back right after this. So please stick around. the guest, Rob Brun-Del-Ray. We're talking about UFOs. We're talking about MJ-12. And when we went away, we were talking about Wilbur Smith's top secret paper that went to, I guess, the Canadian government, the Department of Transportation, based on Robert Sabacher's um, interviews done by a number of people. Uh, Jerry Clark springs to mind immediately. Um, I think Stan Friedman talked to him. Guy named William Steinman talked to him and produced all kinds of information about it. Here's my problem, Rob. Uh-huh. Sabacher never saw anything. Mm-hmm. He was basing it on things he'd heard. So by the uh-huh. time we get to Wilbur Smith, aren't we like third or fourth hand? Could very well be. Yeah. Uh, can we come back to that? I did have a footnote on the Roswell case I should have mentioned in your first segment, Kevin. Do you mind? Go, go ahead. We'll do that, and then we'll come back to, the, to my question. And we'll, we'll come back to the cyber. Yeah, so the, the footnote is that in the mid-'80s or so, just as Roswell was starting to break, this is after Stan Friedman got involved and, you know, started to really dig into it, um, I actually had occasion to have about a 45-minute conversation with Walter Hout. You remember Walter Hout? Good friend of mine, been to his house many, many times, been to dinner with him many, many times. I know Walter oh, Hot. Yes, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, nice, nice man. He was very generous with his time over the phone, mind you, to somebody that he didn't know or had never met. But I called him. I just looked him up in the Roswell uh, telephone directory. He was listed, so I phoned him. We had a really nice conversation, and he basically told me, the story as it was known at the time, i.e. his involvement in releasing the press release. He was directed to do so by Colonel Blanchard, et cetera, et cetera. And he sort of walked me through the whole thing. I did ask specifically, had he seen the debris and had he seen any of the bodies? And he denied both of those. Uh, But again, this is the story as it was known at the time. This would have been about the mid-'80s or so. So even though I'm not sort of one of the prime uh, researchers of the Roswell case, I was satisfied in my conversation with uh, Walter, uh, if I can call him that, that the story that was unfolding was accurate from the perspective of his involvement, because I heard it directly from him. So, well, there's no know, question. For, there's no question that Walter Hott wrote the press release, or at least had the press release dictated to him over the phone. He was never sure whether... Blanchard dictated it to him or merely gave him the facts, and he wrote the press release. And then he, uh, I believe he phoned the four media outlets in Roswell, KGFL, KSWS, the Roswell Morning Newspaper, and the Roswell Daily Record, I think it was Morning Dispatch, um, and gave the information to them, and that went out over the press wires. There's no question that story is all true. There's nothing. There's no, no dispute about that uh, at all. So. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the question comes later when Walt begins to talk about having seen the craft and having seen the bodies and that sort of thing. And it becomes somewhat problematic. And I explore that in depth in Roswell in the 21st century, because I think it's important to understand the whole context of what was going on there at that time. Right. Have, exactly. Having said all of that, though, we need to come back to Sarbacher. Yeah. So, uh, Kevin, just to answer at least my perspective on that one, because I kind of assumed that he had not been directly involved either. Uh, Again, that doesn't mean that what he knew isn't true. 
In other words, if he was passing on information like that to a foreign government, um, he's either part of some program <laughs> that's pretty deep, or he's just passing on information as he understood it to be true. And or I he's passing on God's gossip. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that a PhD in physics or whatever he had would be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, 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 yes, it's possible. I, you know, we can't deny that, but I just find that one hard to believe, especially since the information he's passed on is coming through different venues. You know, surely the people, if it was gossip, you know, who passed that gossip on to him, and was it potentially true? Why well, would it show all, up in the in the MJ? You talk doctor, about you talk about the time frame of 1950, and that becomes a critical date here because in early 1950, a book called Behind the Flying Saucers was released mm -hmm. in which they talk about crashed UFOs, crashed flying saucers in Aztec, New Mexico, which uh, probably is not accurate, but that information is out there and being discussed in various circles around literally the world. I think Time Magazine, which you mentioned, had a story, I think it was on January 17th, 1950. I might have the, the day wrong, but it was January of 19, one of the January issues of, of Time Magazine about the Aztec crash, although it didn't, I don't think it specified Aztec. And it was basically on, uh, it, it was based on um, Frank Scully's book, Behind the Flying Saucers. So we've got that in the Oh, I don't want to say glass notes because that sounds so pretentious. In the ether around people at the time talking about flying saucers and that sort of thing. And Sawbacher mentions it to his friend or heard some people talking about the flying saucers being real. But we don't know who he was talking to. So by the time we get to Smith, it's at least third-hand information. And we have not been able to corroborate those specific details of it. We can get back to Sawbacher and that's all the deeper we can go. I appreciate that. So maybe this will help. Uh, we can we can jump that sort of episode, if you will. Um, but I was able to contact uh, Wilbert Smith's son, who's still alive in the Ottawa area here. He's a former um, elementary school principal, I believe, uh, you know, fairly respectable community position. Um, after several meetings with him over a period of about a decade, James uh, did tell me that his father told him, his father Wilbert told him on his deathbed that he was shown the bodies. So, yes, you know, I understand we can only go so far with the, with the Sarbacher evidence, but um, that's pretty a pretty good source. This is the son of the man himself, so you're hearing it secondhand from me that uh, bodies were shown to Wilbert before he died. Well, actually, I'm hearing it thirdhand from you. Uh -huh. because the son didn't see the bodies. He heard it from his father. That's right, yeah. So well, it depends how you count it, but the father was the witness. The son would be secondhand. You're right, I'd be the thirdhand. I would, yeah. say, I would say the alleged witness, but that's quibbling, I think. <laughs> Anyhow, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, the only true proof is going to be when somebody shows up at the Smithsonian with a cadaver, and uh, there he is. Um, well, let's, but, let's, let, let's chat about... MJ-12 and uh -huh. the magic documents, which ones do you consider to be authentic? Um, which ones are the best ones you, that, that you are aware of? Right. So the best ones I'm aware of are these fragments that showed up on, on some website. Um, they were corollary documents. It was the, um, the FBI document. I forget the, the name of it, but it's where this... Uh, Detective talks about the fact that the saucer that crashed was sent away, and they, you know, described the bodies, etc. There's Hottle, I think, is the name of the FBI guy that wrote that one, and then there's a, a few other sort of MG12 related documents that talk let's, about let's, Maryland. Let's examine. Road. Let's examine the Hottle document for just a moment. Uh huh. You're aware, of course, it was written in 1950, the 1950 uh -huh. time frame, and it's referring to. Behind the Flying Saucers. Right. And the book is very problematic. I think it was thoroughly discredited by J.P. Kane of the San Francisco Chronicle when he did an article for True Magazine, back when True Magazine did exposés and that sort of thing, back when there was a True Magazine, for that matter, um, showing that the 
primary witnesses, Leo Jabauer and, and oh, Silas Newton, were a couple of con men. And the metal that Newton supposedly had from the flying saucer turned out to be rather cheap aluminum. And the whole thing <laughs> yeah. kind of collapsed at that point. And the Hotto memo is based on the book that was written about these stories from Silas Newton and uh, uh, Leo Jabauer. So it seems that that Hotto memo, why he's writing what he learned about it, when we trace it back to its source, seems to be less than credible. Uh-huh. As, as I mentioned before, um, I don't consider any of the MJ-12 documents the classic briefing document that we, we have all seen. I don't necessarily consider it to be genuine, but again, that does not mean that the information it's portraying isn't true. And I still maintain even the Hottle stuff might be based on, you know, some con men perhaps, but the kernel of information in there may actually be accurate. There were little people, and uh, the bodies were, they wouldn't be shared, or the, you know, the crash disk wouldn't be shared with anybody. Um, and that the FBI was annoyed about that. <laughs> so I, I would be well. The crash, the crash disc that the FBI was annoyed about was one that took place in Shreveport, Louisiana, in July of 1947, and it turns out to uh -huh. be a hoax. And that was what, yeah. and that, and that was from a memo um, that uh, J. Edgar Hoover had written on a memo that they thought that we should do, that they should look into the flying saucers, but they wanted right. complete access to discs recovered, and in right. the Louisiana case. Shreveport, Louisiana, the Army took it and wouldn't uh, let them have it. I don't know why the FBI wanted it, because it clearly was a hoax. Yeah. I, I actually thought it was rather interesting that the FBI wanted to be involved in this at all. I thought that was rather curious. I'm not sure that's their mandate, but maybe it is. I don't know. Well, Hoover was building, was building empires. And if you look back to World War II and you see the fight between Hoover and... Um, Bill Donovan for the uh, OSS and what their area of expertise was and where their area of operations were, you see that Hoover was was very busy building empires. So this was another area where he wanted to get his fingers into the pie and not uh -huh. be left out. So that was why he wanted to do that. But in other cases, when the FBI agents were involved with the investigation, they rarely identified themselves as FBI. We look at the Project Blue Book files and we can see cases where the FBI agent is working with a counterintelligence officer from the United States Army and selling the counterintelligence officer, don't tell him I'm FBI, we're just a couple of government agents. So we can right. see all of that going on. Yeah, yeah. So uh, on the MJ-12, though, really, really interesting case. I don't think it's been wrestled down one way or t'other, but um, I still maintain the information smacks true. The, uh, some of the information smacks true, uh, i.e. Vannevar Bush, Forrestal, the existence of a control group; uh, those members may have been the twelve mentioned. We certainly, I certainly believe that it was Vannevar Bush for sure, and Forrestal for sure. Probably the other ten, uh, most likely, and um, and that they're probably still in operation in one way, shape, or form. It might not be called MJ12 anymore, but certainly there's some group someplace that's controlling this whole thing. I guess that's what you're calling your deep state. I, I presume that's sort of a related... Well, it's the deep state, but it, it operates much, much more broadly than just in the UFO environment. It, it operates throughout all levels of the government. Mm -hmm. But here's, 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 a, here's a question for you. Are you familiar with a, a man named, uh, well, a man named General Arthur Exxon? Absolutely, yes. And have you read his... Um, information about who was controlling access to the information back in, in 1947. Um, I, I probably did. I, you'd have to refresh my memory, Kevin. I, I remember reading stuff that he was pronouncing on, but I don't remember the specifics, I guess, to answer your question. Well, he called, he called the group the Unholy 13 merely because he didn't know the name. But he provided the list of names of people who were involved and 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 the list of those people do not correspond with the list of names on MJ-12. And uh -huh. I find General Exxon a much more credible source than a document that arrives on micro uh, on 35 millimeter film at the home of a UFO investigator. I, I noticed on the time I'm going to have to take a break. When we come back, we'll get to that point. And I want to ask you about UFOs proof positive, which was the whole point of the uh, 
the interview here anyway. So we'll get we'll get okay. to uh, to your book at that time. His book is of course UFOs Proof Positive. My website www.kevinrand.blogspot.com. Com, and we will be back right after this. I am here with Rob Brundel Ray. We're talking UFOs, MJ-12, and uh, I guess the history of ufology in that respect. When we went away, I had mentioned General Exxon, and when I interviewed him, uh, he provided the names. He thought there was some kind of an oversight committee that was involved with the recovery operations out of Roswell, and he provided a number of names, which did not match to a great extent that which you would uh, you found on the MJ-12 documents. One of the names missing from the MJ-12 documents, by the way, is uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was the chief of staff of the armies. In, in 1947, the United States Army was broken into ground forces and air forces. And there was a chief of staff of ground forces and a chief of staff of air forces. And then Eisenhower was the chief of staff of the army. His name doesn't appear on it. And I'm wondering how you would move up the army chain of command from Colonel Blanchard to General Ramey in Fort Worth to uh, Clements McMullen and uh, the chain of command in the Strategic Air Command without going through the chief of staff of the of the Army at the time. And that was one of the things that, that Exxon brought out was some of the names just don't match MJ-12, suggesting that there's a great deal of prob problems with the MJ-12 documents. Um, yeah, I, I had, I'm curious to know, though, did Exxon's list include Vannevar Bush and no. Barreto? Did not. No. Uh -huh. he, uh -huh. he talked about top, top intelligence, top military. He talked about Stuart Symington, which caught me by surprise because I thought of Stuart Symington as a senator from Missouri. But it turns out in 1947, uh, Stuart Symington was the first or was the... Um, yeah, the first secretary of the Air Force. Mm -hmm. So when the when the Department of when the Department of War and the Department of Navy were combined in the Department of Defense, and each uh, individual uh, branch of the military got its uh, own secretary, I think Symington became the first secretary of the Air Force. So he would have been the first civilian encountered in the chain of command. But mm -hmm. I've, uh, I've heard of Symington involved as well, by the way, through other sources, not necessarily but, with MJ-12, but with the UFO subject. The, and here's here's the other problem. Um, it's pretty clear that the MJ-12 documents, the original documents, the Truman Memo and the uh, Eisenhower Briefing document were created in Southern California in uh, 1994. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, but again, you know, there, there's probably some truth in the classic intelligence maneuvers, right? You bury some truth amongst a bunch of nonsense, and it well, that's of spreads a little that's, bit of truth. That's if it's that's if it happens to be um, an intelligence operation. But the two guys involved probably were not uh, officially intelligence personnel and were doing it. According to Stan Friedman, one of the guys told him that he was thinking of creating a Roswell type document to circulate to see if um, he could shake other witnesses out of the uh, out of the trees and convince some of the witnesses they had to t tell him tell him more information. In other words, uh -huh. it was created not to uh, as a disinformation ploy, but as an attempt to gather additional information, which, of course, now has cluttered the field for th some, what, 30, 35 years with uh, misinformation. Exactly. I know it's um, all part of the game, I suppose, in its own way. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, as I say, I, I believe there there are kernels of truth in a lot of that stuff, even the behind the flying saucers. The details may be incorrect, but the kernel of truth is in there. 
a saucer came down and it was recovered. At least one came down and it was recovered. There probably have been several, but um, yeah, in my view, you know, you, we started the conversation, Kevin, when you asked me, was there one case that I really felt had lots of merit? And I still believe Roswell's the one for me, anyways. Well, let's let's talk about uh, UFOs proof positive. Sure. What was the motive? Yeah. What was the motivation for writing the book? Oh, great question. So, um, when I sat down and I thought about the whole subject, and this is going back about four or five years now, it occurred to me that there are a lot of books and there is a lot of material out there which is basically recounting eyewitness, you know, testimonies, saucer sightings, pictures. You know, it's that kind of book that there were many of. And I wanted something that was different. I wanted to actually delve into how do people view the subject. And this is essentially based on decades of my conversations over the years with friends, family, colleagues, party attendees. I mean, anybody, if the subject came up, I would explore where they stood on it. You know, what do you think about this? How do you feel about that? And I was and remain astounded at the little boxes that a lot of people are in. Their thinking is constrained by certain boxes. And I wanted to understand why the subject was viewed so negatively. I mean, it really had a negative stigma for decades. And I wanted to understand that because in my simple mind, hearing thousands of people say over the years that they've seen weird things flying around the sky... I'm kind of naturally inclined to believe that some of them, at least, are true. So, all in a roundabout way to say that I wanted to deal with the subject of people's perception of the subject. And what UFOs proof positive is, is an attempt to dismantle the common arguments, and they're always the same arguments you hear, about why UFOs can't possibly be real. And it's, you know, the usual panoply. If they were here, why don't they land on the White House lawn? The distances are too great. They can't possibly be traveling from another solar system. Uh, you know, this is a problem for me re from a religious standpoint. Um, there's too many hoaxes in the field. I mean, you know, you always hear the same arguments over and over again. So what I've done, Kevin, in my book is take the common arguments. I think there's ten of them give or take, it's either nine or ten arguments I always hear, and I devote a chapter to each argument, i.e., okay, so they haven't landed on the White House lawn, so, you know, obviously they're, they're not visiting us because they would have done that. So I take that argument, and I actually look at it from several angles and come up with counter-arguments to why they haven't landed on the White House lawn. There's probably a very good reason for that. And that's the essence of the book. I wanted to get into the psychology, and I use that word loosely. I'm not a psychologist. But I wanted to get into the psychology of denial. Why are people thinking there isn't anything to this subject when the evidence is overwhelming that there is something to this subject? That's in a nutshell what, what the book is about. What what sort of proofs do you offer? You say it's proof positive, so I'm looking for the proofs. Is there a, a case that you cases that you cite in the book that are almost indisputable, or have you had a citing of your own? Is that part of part of where you're coming from? Well, there's, can I give that answer in two phases, uh, Kevin? Certainly, I uh, asked two questions, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll give you the a, a double sided answer. Um, on the one hand, I have not had a sighting of a UFO myself. I have seen one of those green fireballs that people talk about. You may have heard of those fireballs that traverse the sky. So I personally have had a, a, a view of one of those. It was a skiing evening right here locally in, in the Ottawa area. But more importantly, my father, who was a devoutly religious Catholic, raised in the 1930s Italy, straight as an arrow, you know, would not concoct any kind of funny story, he had a close encounter with a UFO in broad daylight, just off the highway uh, between Ottawa and Montreal. It's a two-hour drive, so about halfway between Ottawa and Montreal. 
he saw a UFO close up for 10 to 12 minutes on the side of the highway. He parked, he parked when he saw this thing, he pulled over. And to his dying day, it remained the most important thing of his life. He kept on talking about it, constantly shaking his head about what it was that he saw that he could not explain. And this is a man that survived World War II, by the way, as if he didn't have enough stories to tell us about World War II. It was the UFO, you know, sighting for 10 minutes that haunted him for the rest of his days. So, um, and that's coming from me who heard it from him. So I guess that's a secondhand story of a, of a UFO sighting. But the reason I call the book Proof Positive is that I kept on hearing that there isn't any evidence worthy of study. That seemed to be a common theme. You know, there is no evidence, especially no evidence worthy of study. And what I did one day, I was sitting down thinking about that, and I said, well, wait a minute. The Drake equation kind of shows that no matter how you look at it, the numbers are so huge in the universe of habitable places, probably. Quick, quickly, that, quickly, quickly explain the Drake Drake equation for the audience. Oh, sure. Yeah, Drake, uh, professor of astronomy, I gather, at some university south. You probably know which one, Kevin. I can't recall which university. But in the early 60s, he came up with an equation that essentially compared the number of galaxies and universes and solar systems and suns and planets and blah, 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 that, that that number is so big that even if the number of habitable planets like Earth is infinitesimally small, when you multiply the, a huge number with a really, really small number, you end up getting a number, a positive number that's not zero. So in essence, the Drake equation says life elsewhere in the universe is a certainty no matter how you cut it. It's going to be some... The number of habitable planets in the universe is a number greater than zero. And chances are it'll have life on it. I think that's kind of the essence of the Drake equation. And I sort of thought about that, and I said, well, wait a minute. We've got videos, photographs, eyewitness testimony. We've got pilots. We've got firemen, policemen, military people who have all seen and photographed and videotaped UFOs. How can somebody say there's no evidence worthy of study? So I did a little, I came up with my own evidence equation, if you want to call it. And I basically said, if 99% of everything out there about UFOs is false, you still have 1% that's probably true. And you multiply 1% times a really big number of photographs, videos, eyewitness testimony, you're going to get a big number of evidence that's worthy of study. In other words, evidence that says there's something here. And that's what I say is the proof positive. There's something here that's worthy of study. And it's sort of a bit trite to, to prove mathematically that that's correct. But I think Drake did the same thing with the probability of life in the universe. So why couldn't I do it with evidence? And I think the evidence is there. But there's when you... There. When you title a book Proof Positive, I'm looking for the proof, and it's more, mainly arguments from a logical standpoint, I would say, not proving anything. You you reject the um, the idea that uh, there may be life. I mean, don't reject the idea that there's life in this, the galaxy, other, other intelligence lives in the galaxy, but the uh, physics of the situation is they really can't get here from there, and we don't know a way they can get here from there. And yeah, I will, I will submit that 100 years in the future or 200 years or 1,000 years in the future, we may defeat that problem. But right now, that's a major stumbling block, and I don't think you properly answer that question. I guess it depends on what you consider proof, right? I mean, to some people, proof is a living alien entity that happens to be sitting down in your room having tea with you. And yeah, sure, that's proof. But believe it or not, there's some people that wouldn't believe that's proof enough, right? How do you know he came from another galaxy? That, that you know, open up a whole other line of inquiry. So, you know, for me, the, the answer is essentially, if you consider a videotape of some vehicle that's doing things that we can't replicate on this planet, that's proof. And okay, let, proof me, let me break in here. I've got to take a break. 
We'll be talking about the nature proof when we come back right after that. The book is UFOs Proof Positive. It's by Rob Brundel Ray. Uh, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. I kind of bungled the end of it last time. Take a look at Rosalind in the 21st Century and uh, UFOs in the Deep State, and it'll give you a whole different perspective on the UFO phenomena. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. Rob Brundel Ray, I will say I am maskless because here and where I live, we are no longer required to wear masks in many, many places. We are free, so to speak. I understand that's not the uh, situation everywhere. Anyway, when we went away, uh, we were talking about the nature of proof. We were talking about uh, videotapes or movie footage or photographs of, of UFOs. I've always looked for multiple chains of evidence. And I would think if you've got a flying saucer overhead in today's environment, we should have photographs from multiple locations by independent witnesses. And we don't have anything like that. And that, that I find worrisome. Um, so something like that would go a long way. And what you said earlier about the, uh, no matter what evidence you presented to some people, no matter how solid that evidence was, they wouldn't believe you. And yeah, that's absolutely correct. But we're not worried about those people. We're worried about the, the average person and what do they look at for proof positive? And, and like I said, when I look at your book, I see logical arguments, but I don't see much in the way of case studies. And that's exactly what I tried to avoid, actually, Kevin. I didn't want to do more case studies. There's there's countless books out there that do that. I, I wanted to tackle the, the, um, the thinking that people have about the subject, which is, in my estimation, faulty thinking about why things like this can't possibly be real, how they can't possibly get here, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, can I just maybe uh, come back on one of the points you just made about some of the videos and photographs regarding multiple angles? Um, as far as I know, there are several cases, including the Phoenix Lights and cases in Mexico City, for just to name two, where uh, UFOs were viewed, photographed, and videotaped from multiple sources from multiple locations in the area. So, for example, the Mexico City sightings, I forget the year, about 10, 15 years ago, they have photographs and eyewitness uh, views of these things from all over the city. We're talking tens or if not hundreds of thousands of people that were watching these things. So I think that kind of evidence does exist, maybe not you know, in every UFO case, but certainly with the preponderance of uh, telephones with cameras and video cams, et cetera, et cetera, they're there. I think they just maybe um, need to be, maybe that's a subject for a book, Kevin, book on well, let's, let's, let's more come back. realistic. Let's, you... let's go to Sorry. the Phoenix Lights. You're aware that most of the photographs, most of the film footage, the video taken of that has been shown to be flares. Um. Well, in, yeah. in fact, in fact, the Phoenix Lights story kind of masked the real UFO sighting, which was a large triangular-shaped object that crossed the state uh, over a, a period of time from eyewitness testimony. And I've talked to some of those people. Hell, I've been to Phoenix uh, many times. Yeah. It's a nice city, but the Phoenix Lights photographs, videotapes, are pretty much been been disproven as um, flying saucers. Oh, it's the triangular craft that I was saying or thinking, at least in my mind from the last time I looked at that case, which is a few years ago now. Uh, it was the triangular craft that had been photographed and videotaped from different angles. No, the, 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 the triangular craft people. The triangular craft was not photographed. 
There's uh, many, there's many, many witnesses to it as it traveled across the state of Arizona and 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 in in Nevada. But the the photographic aspect of it is mainly the lights seen over the city of Phoenix, and those are the. the could, could Go ahead. I photographs of that triangular craft. Could, I could have uh, you may have seen illustrations. I'm just trying to think. I'll have to. You're causing me to go back to the books now. I'll have to go back and look that one up. But the the, the Mexico City cases, though, surely you've seen those from multiple angles, and the, that's not the only one. There are several other cases that uh, the craft, in daylight, mind you, was videotaped or photographed from two or three different locations. Well, I think that if you're going to call a book UFOs Proof Positive, you should offer some of that proof in the book, even though I understand you didn't want to get stuck in reciting cases. But it's very hard to look at a case, a book called Proof Positive without being able to say, well, here is the actual evidence, as opposed to here is an argument. Uh, why haven't they landed at the White House? Well, it probably is not a bad, good place to land, uh, given the nature of who we've had in the White House in the last uh, several years. Um, yeah, no, I, I I categorically wanted to avoid getting mired into that kind of but, but the, proof. It's not my game. But the but, but I I think if you're going to call, maybe it should have been UFOs, the logical argument, or something like that. Uh, we have cases where um, information of scientific value has been recovered from the cases. Um, mm especially in the realm of natural phenomena, but we have a number of electromagnetic cases, which I think uh, are a much stronger uh, issue here than than some of the things that you cite. Uh, Level Land, Texas, and I keep beating that drum. For those of you who listen to the program, yes, we're back to Level Land, where we had multiple witnesses in multiple locations reporting that the uh, UFO interacted with the environment uh, independently of one another. And we don't get a lot of those those cases, but I, I'm just kind of puzzled by not offering some actual proof in a book called Proof Positive. Yeah, I, you got to realize that where I'm coming from is I've heard from many people over many years constantly, there's no proof. And I'm saying, yeah, there's proof. You just got to look at things slightly differently and get your mind out of the little box it's in. Uh, and expand it a little bit, you know. Don't discount things like a photograph or a videotape purely on the basis that there's some argument in your head about why it can't possibly be real. And uh, so that's that's the lens, Kevin. That's where I'm coming from. That's it's don't discount valid evidence or proof, if you want to call it some evidence proof, just on the basis that your mind won't allow it to get in there. And that's. That's and I, under, I understand that, but I'm saying, well, you're, you're, you're suggesting there's proof out there, but you're not presenting that proof. You're no, saying, well, there's, not, there's good photographs. Well, what good photographs? Where are these photographs? How can I find them? What can I learn about them? You don't even have to do a lot of information about it. Just provide some information about how to find them. Are McMinnville photographs good? The, the, the photographs taken? Go, in, yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the Lubbock Lights? Is that good? Um, but you don't provide any of that kind of information that somebody who wants to expand their mind can get into. All we have is this argument. Well, you say uh, there is no proof. I say there is proof. Go find it. I mean, that's that's kind of what I got from looking at the book. So are you suggesting I should write another book? If the mood moves you. <laughs> <laughs> and well, if you do write already, another book, you're, you're invited back to do and we can discuss it, too. <laughs> I'm running out of time, I think, in my life to for all the things I want to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there are libraries of books. There are tons of, uh, there is ton of information online of various sightings. I'm certainly not qualified to say that the McInville photos are one way or t'other. They're certainly very interesting, and they're, nobody's debunked them as far as I know. Um, but, you know, it, it, people have to make up their own minds. What, what my aim is, and always has been with this book, is don't constrain yourself to some arguments that have logical faults and therefore discount things on that basis. Is There are real reasons why those arguments are faulty. So look at things differently and start to expand your mind. Maybe some of those pictures are real. All it takes is one. Stan Friedman's famous comment, right? 99% of these cases could be false. All it takes is one real one for the whole subject to be valid and real. 
and uh, that that always stuck with me. Um, and, and the and the flaw in Stan Friedman con, uh, comment is he never presented that one case. No, of course not. But uh, you you asked in one of your earlier segments today, uh, is there that one case? And I I believe the answer is yes. It's Roswell, and others. There are others, of course. There's the famous Shag Harbor incident in Canada that you may or may not have heard of. Um, have you heard of well, Shag that, Harbor? Well, that that means. That means you ought to take a look at my blog because uh, there'll be a posting about Shag Harbor. And in fact, in a couple of the books, I mentioned Shag. I know Chris Stiles. I know uh, Don Ledger, who uh, did the investigative work on Shag Harbor. So, of course, I'm familiar with Shag Harbor. Oh, fabulous. Great case. Again, I don't know the ground truth on that one, but it's certainly quite mysterious. And uh, when I looked at it, I did a bit of research on my own and found out. And, and you know, it could have been the same kind of research that uh, the two guys you just mentioned did, but... The whole story originates someplace out west over Calgary um, and the western provinces of Canada. That's where the story started. And everybody thinks about Shag Harbor in Nova Scotia as being, you know, the story. But no, there's a whole series of uh, sightings, including airline sightings of a craft in obvious distress originating over western Canada. We're talking 2,000 miles away from where it came down. So there's a whole whole story around Shag Harbor. If anybody wants to look into that, very, very interesting case. And the ground truth is still not out on that one, as far as I'm concerned, anyways. And I think you've just made my point for me, which is you offer a logical argument, and we can make those same kind of arguments about a lot of things that don't exist. And I suggested we needed some kind of physical evidence or some kind of cases in here to to sort of solidify it. And you just came up with Shag Harbor. You should discuss. You should have discussed Shag Harbor. You should have discussed some of these things in your chapters. Yeah, Shag Harbor is a, a three or four books all on its own. There's numerous um, witnesses to that that have recently been found by these guys. Um, yeah, I mean, and I'm not a Shag Harbor expert by any stretch. But again, uh, Kevin, my intention is not to to be presenting the proof. My my purpose is to point people to the fact that there is evidence and proof out there. It's available. Well, I think that's a good place to end the conversation. That sounds good. Can I just with, make with one that, final comment? Uh, what, what I was just going to say, the book is UFOs Proof Positive. The author is Robert Brune Del Rey. And, what's your, and, and, and speak away. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Oh, sorry, Kevin. I just wanted to come back to your opening comment, that amazing comment that uh, Obama just made recently that you referred to. And when you mentioned that, it what immediately popped to mind was an interview that somebody made with the Dalai Lama some years ago, and I can't remember which Dalai Lama it was, but he was asked about UFOs and aliens, and his reply was, quote-unquote, as I recall it, I'm not allowed to talk about that. It's not that he couldn't talk about that. It, he was not allowed to talk about that. That's what stuck in my mind. I wish I had the reference at my fingertips. I don't. But again, some research, if people want to do it, that is on the record someplace about uh, about the Dalai Lama's comments on UFOs and aliens. Well, thank you, Rob. I appreciate you taking time to discuss all of this uh, with us today. Uh, once again, the book is UFOs Proof Positive. And the author is Rob Brun Del Rey. Next week, I will be joined by Don Ecker. And I think we're going to talk about the state of UFO research, the state of ufology in the world today, especially with all that's been going on in the last uh, week or so. And I will have, of course, more information about that um, in the, in the very near future. Take a look at my blog. Since he mentioned Shag Harbor, I'm about to post something of discussion of Shag Harbor uh, on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com to give you a little bit more of a perspective of what happened there and how that whole case kind of unfolded. I was going to say unraveled, and that gives you a wrong impression, unfolded. I think it's a much better word for it. Um, and I, I think that 
we can understand better what's going on in the world of ufology today if you take a look at UFOs in the deep state. And I say that because, of course, I'm biased for the book. But I think given what's going on in right now, this provides a perspective of what is being said by various government officials and various government agencies here in the United States and how all of this is coming together um, in, in a, a kind of a mass of stuff like that. Uh, take a look at that. Take a look at Rosalind, the 21st century, uh, the best of Project Blue Book. You have been listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network, and I'll be back in about 167 hours with more incredible information. Thanks for tuning in.